Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Show, the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions. And now, the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio. Here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show. Um, We've been on the air now uh, in our 20th year, and the whole uh, really object of this program is to show you how you can create solutions from issues, and we're certainly doing that today, and we're looking at, you know, how can we really enrich our lives. My guest today is Derek Black. He is a law professor and a public education advocate. And he makes a very powerful case for valuing public education as a cornerstone of our nation, rather than labeling it as another commodity to be cut to the bone or privatized for profit. And today we're going to talk with him about the importance of and right to a free and equal education for every child across this country. And the name of his brand new book, he has a brand new book, and it is called Schoolhouse Burning. And the subtitle is Public Education and the Assault on the American Democracy. Derek Black is a professor at the University of South Carolina Law School, where he teaches constitutional law, civil rights, and educational law. And he grew up in a politically conservative um, family. He elected to major in African-American studies. And he is an outspoken advocate for public education. Welcome, Derek. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be back. Good, thank you. Yeah, I had you on when you talked about your book, Ending Zero Tolerance, The Crisis of Absolute School Discipline. So, you know, your title, my show is very much about positive thinking and positive living. And the title of this book, um, it doesn't, doesn't have that connotation. You know, when we say schoolhouse burning and public education and the assault on American democracy, um, that may be so. And as I said, one of the things I try to do is look at how can we move forward so we can take the issue at hand and really look at some solutions. So talk about the title of the book and kind of where you see all this moving forward. Yeah. Well, you know, books take on a title of their own, so take on a life of their own sometimes because, you know, the, the authors have one set of goals and, and maybe publishers have another. You know, most of the titles I liked probably sounded more like, you know, romance novels than, than anything. Yeah. Like forever cherished or, you know, you know, sort of lofty things like this and, and sort of, the, uh, you know, sort of why we need to support education. But, you know... It, you know, negative cells, you know, and I, I will say, you know, I fought with the editors. They probably kill me saying this, but I fought with them for quite an extended period of time. I kept saying, like, I just, I don't, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like the negative. And I told them, and you better be darn sure I'm not going to put a burning school on the front of it or anything like that. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I gave them so many over such a long period of time. My wife finally said, look, Derek, unless you can give them something better, you might as well give up. And I think that's sort of why it ended up with the, you know, the phrase it did is that like I couldn't find something as catchy and powerfully positive as it, it as the current one is, you know, catchy negative, I guess. And so, you know, I just sort of rolled over and said, fine, you know, I mean, you guys bought the book, you're going to put what you want on the front of it, but the inside is mine. Yeah. So, you know, I picked yeah. pick, pick my battles and, and that was one that I, I kind of let go when it was all said and done. So so let's look at then moving forward. Why do you think public education is essential to preserving the democratic ideals that makes our country unique and great? Yeah, I mean, I, I say early on in the book that America really is a, a radical experiment. We don't we don't think of ourselves like that now, but you know, at, at that point, you know, in seventeen seventy six, the world is ruled by kings and queens and, and feudal lords and and elites. And the idea that you would just let regular old people, you know, run their own country was 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 uh, heretical in, in some circles. And so the the Washingtons and Jeffersons and Adams of the world said, look, you know, we're going to do this, and it may fail, but the only way it will succeed is if we have a public, we have an educated and intelligent electorate making these decisions, right? They were kind of suspicious of the regular regular average person, and so there was this idea from the get-go, if we're going to have self-government, it has to be self-government by educated citizens, and, you know, long way towards a long history after that trying to perfect 
you know, that education system. But it was there from day one that we need that for our democracy to work. Mm, important. Um, how are those seeking to privatize education today, you know, envisioning an entirely different form of democracy than the one that we committed to in 1776? Yeah, I mean, the if you if you go back to 1776 or maybe 1785, which is when they when they passed um, in a Northwest Ordinance before we even had a Constitution, they said, look, the founders passed uh, this ordinance, and it said for all of the Western lands as they transition into become states, every single town must reserve its center lot for the construction of public schools and its outer lots to generate resources. So from day one, we have this sort of structural deal whereby the community is going to support public education and then it's going to reinforce our democracy. And there's there's lots of stuff in between and we, we can get to that later. But you sort of fast forward to today, um, you know, the, the, the mantra is, is that the resources that public education demands are too much, you know, that they're, that they're sucking resources out of wealthy communities and giving them to other communities, and, and people don't like that, you know, and, and that, is a, that is a different form of, of democracy, right, this sort of idea that we don't need public education at the center. And, and the other thing I might say that's, that's really radically different is the reason why, the, in, in addition to being intelligent voters, the founders believed that we needed to find the common good, right, that ultimately it's not really in our instincts, our human nature to try to find agreement and, and come together with people we don't know and, and, and to, to transcend our differences. But that's what they thought public education could help us do. Well, what we see today with privatization is that we don't need to transcend boundaries. We don't need to come together as a people. We don't need to have a common good. We can have a thousand different versions of the good life, and we can all live them in our separate little corners, and I guess we'll just play on our iPhones and, and never see each other. I, I don't know what the end game is there, but it's, it's destructive, in my mind, to a government of the many for us all to, to sort of go into little different silos. Public education is the one institution. You think about it. It is the one institution that we all come together on equal terms yeah. at. I mean, without yeah. it, we don't have it. Well, and if you think about that, you know, when you're dealing with private education, many of, not all the time, but a lot of the time you're dealing with a certain socioeconomic group. So you've already, you've already limited that, as, as you just said. You know, it isn't everybody. And so that has, you know, disadvantages in that you're not always seeing everything. Now, I will say that sometimes uh, I have seen in private schools when students come from all over the world, um, you, you do get a variety of students. When that happens, there are some private schools that have that where, um, you know, you, you have sort of that cultural mix that you don't always mm-hmm. see um, in other education. What do you think about that? Well, you certainly, you know, this sort of international uh, sort of sphere, you know, K through 12, you're probably going to get that in, in a private school. But then you need to get into publics too. But I guess what I would say is to that sort of fundamental question, I mean, our public schools have more segregation, more isolation than, um, than they ought to. But that lessons we learn from that are incredibly important. So one of the things, you know, that I talk to my children about is that like our lives, meaning our families, they're not normal. Right? I mean, we may be in public schools and acting like it's all, it's like, no, we're, we are still incredibly privileged, right? And, and yeah, I don't want to hear you, maybe we'll talk about you know, COVID later. I was like, I don't want to hear you complaining about online education. Like, I know it stinks. I don't want to hear you complain about how you went, have went on vacation. It's like, you know, we have a large home. We have a neighborhood with tennis courts. You know, we have uh, plenty of room to roam. Our children have their own bedroom. They all have more than one electronic device. Like, we are by no means privileged. But I think we all, as we get into our silos, even in our own homes, it's always like, oh, woe is me, woe is me. And so even in our public schools, I think it's important. Like, that's the lesson is that, you know, you need to appreciate the situation you have and also understand there's a lot of other kids that you mm-hmm. go to school with that when they go home their experience is entirely different than yours yeah and I, I think that's that's important for personal and human human development how do you think Derek that COVID has affected all this where you know the common denominator is many of us are just staying at home so private or public you're learning from home so mm-hmm. comment on that 
Yeah, I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, of course, I, I would never wish any of this on us, but at the beginning, when the schools first shut down and the kids are at home, uh, I was like, you know, th- this, is a, this is an enlightening moment for, for a lot of us that parents began to see, wow, the stuff that teachers do every day, it's not easy. It's not easy to get kids to sit still and stay focused, right? It's not easy for them to learn things quick. Like, it is, it is slow, laborious developmental work. And so I thought, you know mm. what? We might give our teachers a little bit of a break. You know, all this, like, failing schools, my teacher's terrible, she won't do this, he won't do this. Well, I think a lot of us got a crash course on what bad teachers we are ourselves. Like we think some another it's easy and we can like tell the teacher they need to be it's, it's not. So, you know, that that I thought that was going to be an important sort of moment in, in in American history. But, you know, humans also have a tendency to see to only have so much patience and see what's immediately in front of them. So that by the time we get to the end of the summer, you know, yeah, parents may have had appreciation for what teachers do back in March and April, but by the end of the summer, parents are kind of like sick of dealing with the situation or they're in a financial situation where they cannot deal with the situation. And now all of a sudden, like all of these theories of learning and all, like, I don't care. I want my kid back in school, right? And so we start mm. to take defensive, hardline positions uh, about what needs to happen do, because do you you know, th- families were yeah. stressed. Do you think that family, because of what you just said, do you think parents are more appreciative of the teacher and the experience? What do you think? Well, I, I, we can't speak in generalizations. I, I can tell you that because I study and work in this, that like I'm very well attuned to the pressures that both teachers and families are under. And again, my family's not under near the pressure that a lot of other families, but, you know, I talk to them. And so, like, I try my best to avoid adding to a stressful situation for teachers because I understand the pressures they're on. But, you know, with think of a single parent household, uh, you know, working an hourly job for, for, for wages and, you know, the kids struggling with online learning, that's a pressure cooker that, you know, those, those parents may take it out on the teachers and vice versa. So, you know, I'm not privy to those conversations. I think some parents appreciate the teachers. They appreciate the effort they're putting in. And so some parents are under so much pressure themselves that they can't, they're not really in a position to appreciate anyone. Right? They're, mm. they're just trying to keep their head above the water. Yeah. Well, we're going to come back after the break and we're going to talk more about public education. We're going to talk about it for minorities and women. We'll talk about um, how democracy really fits here and how it's so important for democracy. And um, Derek Black will certainly explain how that's so and why it's so important that we honor and respect uh, public education. Right, and Derek Black is a professor at the University of South Carolina Law School, where he teaches constitutional law, civil rights, and education law, and he is an outspoken advocate of the importance of public education. All right, folks, uh, we're going to take a break right now. You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on voiceamerica.com, America's Voice, and we will be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input, too. Listen for Brave Hearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Do you want to hear a show about football? How about football moms? What if we told you that was just a start? Tune in for Double Down with Garrett and Mack. Audrey Garrett and Jeracy Mack are moms to some well-known NFL players. Sure, they'll talk football and raising their kids to achieve greatness, but they'll also talk about community and world issues, motherhood, news, and lifestyle topics. Listen in every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. are listening to the patricia raskin show if you wish to call into our program today please call 1-866-472-5788 that number again is 1-866-472-5788 you may also send an email to patricia at patriciaraskin.com now back to the patricia raskin show hi everyone and my guest today is Derek black He's a professor at the University of South Carolina Law School, where he teaches constitutional law, civil rights, and education law. He grew up in a politically conservative, overwhelmingly white community, and he elected to major in African-American studies as an undergraduate and later founded the Education Rights Center at Howard University. He's an outspoken advocate of the importance of public education, and his work has been published in both professional journals and the mainstream media. He's also the author of Ending Zero Tolerance, The Crisis of Absolute School Discipline. And his brand new book is called Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. Welcome back, Derek. Okay, so let's talk about women and minorities. Uh, How has public education tracked that? Well, obviously at the beginning of our founding, if you look at who the electorate was, it was white males and not even all white males. It was primarily white males with uh, land. And what you see is that our education system has often reflected who our electorate is so that each time we make a major expansion to the electorate, we need to expand the education system, or we do it in conjunction with that. So if we sort of fast forward to the end of the Civil War, for instance, we're talking about a period in which we're now going to bring millions of former slaves into the electorate as full citizens. And, you know, this is a group of people who had obviously been enslaved and and shut out of society. And so we also in the South had a lot of poor whites that hadn't had any education. Mm-hmm. Public education just did not really exist in the South, and those folks weren't weren't really voting either. So they said, look, if, if we are going to make this look like a real democracy, our public education has got to change. We've got to have a system that's got to serve all. So that's what it does, right? It expands to cover, uh, you know, African Americans and whites, regardless of socioeconomic status. Still a lot of, you know, gender issues going on there. You know, I think we have... A different curriculum for women for a long time, um, but and then sort of fewer higher education opportunities. But if you sort of jumped into the 20th century when women um, were in the, the 19th Amendment extending the right to vote to women, you also see right sort of an expansion of, of education opportunities for women. But we also see the inverse, right? So I talk about the end of the Civil War as being this, the, the largest single moment expansion of public education in our history. Well, when the South wants to effectively re-enslave or reduce African Americans back to something similar to their prior position during Jim Crow segregation. Where do they start? They actually yeah. start at the schools, right? They actually do two things. In, in Mississippi in 1891, they come together for a convention. They say, we've come here for one thing and one thing only, and that is to disenfranchise the Negro. That's what they said at the yeah. beginning of the meeting. And so what do they do? They start passing grandfather clauses. They start doing stuff with voting, literacy tests, and they segregate and make funding for school unequal, right? So that those two things were happening at the exact same time. You flip back to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund in, in the 20th century, and when they say, you know what, we need to make good on that promise following the Civil War to make African Americans full citizens in this country. Where did the NAACP start? Most people know this story. They didn't start at the ballot box. They started with schools. They said, let's mm-hmm. desegregate the schools. If we can desegregate the schools, we can desegregate America. Now, mm-hmm. we never fully desegregated our schools or America, but we made a lot of progress, and it started yes, at the Yes, we have. 
Yeah, yeah, I think we really have. But but let me ask you this. You know, why shouldn't parents be concerned about the quality of their child's education and place their trust in the private sector, you know, and vote to support charter schools and voucher programs? So although definitely um, you talk about public education and it's so important, but why shouldn't parents think about the quality of their education in either charter schools or the private sector? Well, look, you know, parents are always going to think about quality first. There, there's no doubt about that. And parents should think about quality, right? I mean, the way that ultimately we, we get a good education in our public schools or in our private schools are to have parents holding the schools accountable, right? So so no second-guessing there. You know, as the private schools and, and, and charter schools, I think there's a lot of misconception and misunderstanding about whether there actually are better quality or whether there's there's quality problems in the public schools let let, let me let me just put it in the in the sim, the simplest terms to show why test scores well, test scores themselves are problematic, but even if we accept test scores, do test scores prove that private education is better than public education? Absolutely not. You know, Chris Lubiansky did a nationwide study and said, look, if we're comparing apples to apples, kids on average uh, do almost exactly the same, if not slightly worse, in private schools than they do in public schools. And people go, well, how can that be? My private school down the street, the average SAT is, you know, we'll just pick it up, you know, 1540. Well, that doesn't mean it's a better school. If we took what you really, what we're really talking about is we've got a public school with you know two thousand kids in it, right? And if what we do is look at the the top fifteen percent of the students, well, their average SAT is you know fifteen fifty. Let's say the overall school's average is thirteen hundred. If those top kids just leave and go to a private school together, then the average of that new private school is going to be 1550 and it's going to drop at the public school. Does that mean that the private school is better than the public school or just that the children who are performing very well have made a choice to go somewhere else? And the answer is, when researchers look at it in a serious way, that by and large, right, what you're really doing is just saying, look, it's just the high-performing kids going to another school which produces a higher average. I think the question is, is the school giving is, value yeah, added the, to your is child? The educa- right, is the education better is what you're saying. Does is that it, mean is it helping your child perform better? Kid? Yeah. And, and the answer is sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. The average SAT score at a school doesn't tell you whether a school is giving value added or whether the children there are outperforming. It really takes a lot more sophisticated looking at it uh, to, to, to get to that conclusion. Yeah, that's very interesting, right? Because you could have an outstanding teacher in a public school um, as, as well as in the private school that would give that child just as much of an education. But we don't look at it that way, right? Because we look at the high-performing student um, rather than often the quality of the education. Yeah, and it, well, it's hard to measure. It, you know, for 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 non for people who aren't you know education research, it's hard to know what the difference in quality is. And I often tell, well, I regularly tell my colleagues that often what you're talking about are cultural differences, not not academic differences. Um, mm. You know, and and even between two high performing private schools, let's say this one's got one set of test scores and the other one has another. I said, does that mean one's better than the other? I said, no. To me, you look at the two private schools, the real difference between them is culture. This particular one, School B, is a, is a little bit more sort of liberal artsy, right? And the other one's a little bit more athletic-oriented. I'm not going to tell you that one of those schools is, is better than the other. I'm going to tell you they have different values. And we mm-hmm. might say the same thing about our public schools. I can't tell you just by looking at test scores whether this you know, this private school is, is better than this public school. What I can tell you is it does represent a different set of values. I can tell you that. But how do, but how do we know that? I mean, isn't that subjective or is it? Oh, I don't think it's subjective at all. I mean, you you can see that you know public schools number one are required to have certain values in terms of you know accepting all students regardless of you know their LGBTQ status, all students regardless of their English language learner status, all children regardless of their their disability, all children regardless of their wealth, right? Um, an education that doesn't preach. Uh, religion as science or religion as truth, right? I mean, those, those are values, and the private system um, doesn't have to adhere 
to those values. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's more variance there. Now, some private schools can adhere to them, but that's a choice that they make. It's not something that's forced mm-hmm. upon them. So there's certainly, and you know, hey, and to be clear, we've got public, uh, we've got public schools that value um, the football teams. Uh, you know, win-loss record more than they value the AP program. So, you know, again, mm-hmm. we, they, they all have values, and they, I think those are, you know, what value is correct may be subjective, but the fact that they have different values is, is an objective distinction between them. Yeah, and I think the question is, how does the parent really choose? Right? How, how does the parent choose? Well, you know, I think what there's a blank on her last name, um, but she was a researcher in in Chicago, and she said, you know, the real privilege, the real privilege is not having to choose. That's the privilege. Um, and she was what she was talking about where the she was looking at charter schools in Chicago, where ultimately. You know, higher wealth families, they go to public schools, they go to their local neighborhood school. They don't make any choices, they just go to their local school. And it's all the low income children who have to make choices because none of their choices are good. They're sort of choosing between sort of the, the, the worst options, right? And so she, that's why she says, like, the real privilege is not having to choose, right? And I think that's the public education system that our founders were thinking about. That's the public education system that post Civil War we were thinking about, that during the Civil Rights Movement we were thinking about. It's it's not the one we're thinking about now, and it's certainly not the one that we're giving to our children. What they were thinking about was a public education system robust enough, equal enough, financed adequately enough, that they were all melting pots of quality. So mm-hmm. the parents didn't have to make cho- choices mm-hmm. about where am I going to buy a house or not yeah. buy a house because I feel like I'm consigning my child to you know, a lack of opportunity. I think that's the America that I want to live in is where parents can choose to live wherever they want to and know. It's going to be a fully financed and equal, integrated, you know, multicultural school waiting for them there. Mm, all right. And on that note, we're going to take a break. And my guest today is Derek Black. And Derek is a law professor. Of public, He's a public education advocate and a law professor. And he makes a powerful case for valuing public education as a cornerstone of our nature of our nation, rather than labeling it as another commodity to be cut to the bone or privatized for profit. So um, we're having quite a discussion here. His new book is called Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. And what we're talking about today is why public education is so important and what it can do for our children. And we're going to talk more about that right after the break with Derek. And we'll talk about funding. We'll talk about top quality education. We'll talk about um, test scores and more about public education and the the real importance right after the break with Derek Black. This is Patricia Raskin, and I'm the host of Patricia Raskin Positive Living, right here on voiceamerica.com, America's Voice, and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get ready to go inside the lives of some of the top recording artists the music industry has known. Join host Troy Bronstein every week as he becomes a prince among queens. Troy discusses the careers and past, present, and future projects from these artists. And if there's time on each show, you just might hear some performance gems as well. Listen for Prince Among Queens every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. You are listening to The Patricia Raskin Show. If you wish to call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. Now, back to The Patricia Raskin Show. Hi, everyone, and we are back. And my guest today is Derek Black. He's a professor at the University of South Carolina Law School, where he teaches constitutional law, civil rights, and education law. And he's really an advocate for public education. And we're talking about his brand new book, and it is Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. So, you know, I was saying during the break that I think there is kind of a myth out there that people, a lot of people automatically think, well, private school is better than public school. Talk about that, Derek. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of variance. You know, we talked about it earlier. I mean, number one, you can't reduce it to, to just test scores. And, and ultimately, you know, you have to think about, what is this school helping my child perform better than they would have performed in public school? Um, you know, there's also... Values. I mean, I mentioned earlier, and maybe that you know your your local public school is is too much into sports, and you want less sports. I mean, there 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 are these values. There's academic things, but when we look across the nation, what we see is that and there are certainly some private schools that are providing added, uh, value added, which is they're actually helping children achieve better than they would have in the regular public schools. But we find that on average, when you take all the private schools out there, they all come in different shapes and sizes and different qualities, and then that on average, they actually do not outperform the local public schools. And, you know, we have, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to critique any, but we have a lot of right, really struggling, you know, underfunded uh, inner-city Catholic schools, right? Now, um, some of those are, are, are struggling. We have a lot of, particularly here in the South, you know, Baptist churches sort of starting their own, uh, you know, school or Methodist places starting their own school. And, like, they're not in the school business. They're in the religion business. And just because they open it up and it's private doesn't mean it's going to be better. I mean, ultimately, you know, our public schools have professional administrators and they have people that have been doing this for a while. So, you know, anyway, there's outliers across the board but by and large, the data tells us that, you know, there, there's not, on average, anything that tells us that just because a private school is private that it's any better than a public school. In fact, it may mm-hmm. be slightly worse. How do you, what would be your prescription? And, I mean, you've, you've seen this and you know the laws for a top-quality education for all of our students, pre-K to grade 12. How, how could we ensure this in public school? Yeah, I mean, so... It's not just about money, but all the things I'm about to talk about cost money. So, so number one is you, you have to have adequate funding, right? And that, that's number one. In our schools, if you look at the, at the past decade, about it's, it's a little bit less than half now, but a little bit less than half of our states right now are still funding and have been funding education at a lower level in real dollar terms than they were before the Great Recession. Right? So we dug a big hole following the last recession and have not filled it back in in a lot of states. And the net result of that is that we have decimated the teaching force. So if you really want to know first and foremost what makes for a good school, it's quality teachers, right? I mean, you don't, you don't need a law degree or a, or a Ph.D. in education to know that quality teachers matter and we're short on them. Why are we short on them? Because we don't pay them a high enough salary, you know, mm-hmm. to pay the bills and pay off their student degrees. And, you know, I'm not going to 
talk a lot about regulation, but we've done a lot of stuff on the legal side of things to make life inhospitable for them uh, over the past uh, 20 years. So we just have fewer and fewer and fewer young people every year going into schools of education. During the recession, there were 60% drops in some states in terms of the number of young people taking up degrees in education. And I was just saw a report yesterday out of Indiana that said only one out of six students who declares uh, education as their degree uh, and and in college actually stick with and complete that degree. Now I know there's a look. You know I've got enough different majors. You know beyond just African American studies to show you. I took a few different classes, so you're always gonna have a certain percentage of students bouncing around. But you know it is somewhat surprising, like. Public, you know, education is not a random choice. It seems to me to to elect, mm-hmm. you know, that degree. And when you're losing five out of six of those people to other degrees, you know, th- there, there's there's an issue. So number one, quality teachers. We are not we are not providing salaries, nor are we providing the type of environment to to attract them. Do you see that, that as improving? Do you think that's a, do you do you in the future? Do you see that changing, Derek? Well. It's going to have to. I mean, if we want to have public education, I think, I think, I think it has to. I mean, it's not a hard thing to correct. I mean, there are other countries that get this right. I mean, we often look to Finland and countries like this, which have different set of issues. But if you look at who is electing to become teachers, it's demographically much different in other countries than it is in America. Because in other countries, it's a prestigious opportunity. All right, it's an opportunity that you can build a career out of. It used to be something you could easily build a career out of here in America, but it, it's just not that anymore. So it's ultimately a matter of public will. Are we mm-hmm. willing to stop micromanaging teachers? Are we willing to pay salaries that are competitive? Are we willing to commit to a, a profession that attracts people as opposed to running them off? If we do that, we will have young people going into education and staying there. It's, it's a matter of public will. So that so that's one, you know, that I think that's actually the easiest piece of the puzzle to solve, to be quite honest, right? That sort of quality teacher, you just, you know, it, we can do that. The other piece, though, and this goes to some of our, our earlier conversations, I mean, I think a quality education is a diverse education. Right? It's not an mm-hmm. education where everyone thinks the same thing you do comes from right. the same place you come from and eats the same food you eat. And, you know, this isn't just sort of, you know, modern liberalism. I mean, actually learning theory demonstrates that deeper learning and problem skills develop in diverse learning environments because instead of your mind jumping to assumptions and reaching conclusions without thinking about the logic to get there, you begin to go, wait a minute, somebody's got a different opinion than me. Why do I think differently than them? How do I get to that conclusion? So that actually learning theory demonstrates that diverse Diverse student groups produce better outcomes, and learning in a diverse environment actually makes for more robust thinking on the on the part of the individual. And then, well, of sure. course, there's the values, the values that you that you adopt by being around folks different than yourself. So, you know, in my mind, we've got to do a much better job, and this is the harder thing of, of making sure our schools um, are integrated on multiple levels, not not just race, but socioeconomic. Uh, and and race, so that we we don't have people learning in silos. And I think this is a you know if you look at the fissures that we have in society today, you need to look no further than uh, you know the riot, you know on January sixth, yeah. the insurrection. Yeah. Now we may we're always going to have differences of political opinion, but that is a testament to how, not just that we disagree on politics, but that we live in different worlds and we don't care about each other, that we can't come together and agree disrespectfully. And, you know, public schools can't solve all of that. Uh, that would I'd be foolish to say they are. But they have to promote a different set of values than what we see on TV if we have any hope of getting past this current place that we're in. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it. but it takes, now, do you think that um, working with your legislators, your congressmen, your local representative, you know, being part of the, of the school, being active in school committees or school board, do you think that will make a difference? It, it absolutely does. Uh, you know, one of the key factors and another key factor in quality public education are 
parents uh, who are involved in schools and will hold those schools accountable, right? That it's actually a team effort. Not not for the parents to micromanage the schools, but to know that they care, know that they're invested, and they're asking questions, and they're involved. So parental involvement is, is a huge function in school quality, so that it's a community endeavor. Um, you know, the problem that we've run into at the at the political level, so to speak, in the last decade or so is that education has become a political issue. If you look across the arc of history, public education has never been a Democratic or Republican issue. That, like, actually, regardless of what your feeling is about, you know, guns or abortion, et cetera, et cetera, there's an enormous amount of agreement on the question of public education throughout mm-hmm. our history. And in fact, it was not until Donald Trump, you know, just this last cycle, that, that, that there was ever someone who ran on a major political party's platform for president who was not all in supportive of public education. You could, they, yeah. There's no way you could get a nomination if you weren't pro-public education until, mm. <laughs> until this moment. And, you know, I don't raise that to sort of go after Donald Trump, but just to say the politics have changed so that there, we are now getting yeah. to this place where you do have to think about public education when you go to the ballot box, both with, you know, president, governor, and local legislators, because there are, there's a growing segment that is decidedly anti-public education. So you cannot trust, regardless, and I'm not going to just make it a Republican issue, I don't care what party they represent, you can no longer trust that uh, everyone on the ballot is pro-public education. Mm-hmm. And that means that, you know, people have had to start fighting for their schools mm-hmm. in a way they've never had to fight before. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about how school districts can balance the challenge of COVID, you know, and and government revenues and the right to education and, you know, really looking at this because certainly COVID has, has made a difference. And we'll also talk about, you know, beyond test scores, what else parents should consider as uh, sometimes their faith is tested in public schools. So we'll talk more about uh, Derek Black's new book, Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy, and how we can strengthen our public education system. Again, um, you are listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on voiceamerica.com, America's Voice. And we'll be back with Derek Black, who is a professor at the University of South Carolina Law School, where he teaches constitutional law, civil rights, and education law. Stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in every week for Making Action Happen, hosted by Sarah Blackhurst. The program takes you inside Action 22, a Colorado-based community outreach organization established in 1999. The show focuses on public policies, both politically driven or not, which have ongoing and immediate impact on the Colorado community and the world. It doesn't matter where you are, you can make action happen. Listen Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and 1 p.m. Mountain Time on Voice America Variety. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
You are listening to The Patricia Raskin Show. If you wish to call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. Now, back to The Patricia Raskin Show. Hi, everyone, and we are back. My guest is Derek Black, a professor at the University of South Carolina Law School, where he teaches constitutional law, civil rights, and education law. Um, He also founded the Education Rights Center at Howard University, and he's been an outspoken advocate of the importance of public education. And his first book was Ending Zero Tolerance, The Crisis of Absolute School Discipline. And now his second book is Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on the American Democracy. Welcome back, Derek. All right. So let's um, let's take a look here at what schools can do to balance the challenge of COVID you know, and the right to education in a way that ensures smart policy decisions. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we so much of of schooling over the last couple of decades has been test scores, test scores, test scores. We've, 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 we've said that a lot on, on this show as well. It's a way of thinking about them. But really, you know, as I say in the book, the things that make a school good are not things that you measure on, on standardized test scores. They're things that when you go into the building, um, you, you see how a teacher relates to his or her students, right? You see whether they're patient or they're not patient. You see whether kids are getting along or not getting along. You see whether kids feel pressured or uncomfortable about the clothes they wear or they don't wear. To me, those are the things that make a school good. And um, you know, I think test scores often erode that. I think we have to support our schools uh, to, great, to create positive environments right, for our students, uh, healthy environments, and, and environments for the whole child. You know, as we get into standardized tests, again, just to sort of point out, like, I mean, every kid develops at a different rate. You've got kids in one, in one class um, who may be, you know, seven years and one month, and another set of kids that are seven, month, seven years and ten months. And it's kind of hard to compare the reading level of a seven-year one month to a seven-year ten month because right, there's so much about education is developmental. And so I just think we have to understand that each child is developing at a different rate, you know, and we need to encourage creativity and growth, not just sort of hammering standards, hammering tests, which, you know, and now we're worried about that, right? There's all this talk about, oh, you know, how much learning have the kids lost? How much, you know, how much testing and progress have they lost? Well, like, how many friendships have they lost, right? right. How many opportunities right. to develop new friendships right. have they lost? Those are right. just as important. Right. And also, as you said, children learn differently. I mean, for some students, the technology is great. They prefer online learning. And for some students, it doesn't work as well. So again, right, it really uh, depends upon your learning style. Well, and, you know, I was just having a conversation with, with some college professors last week. I mean, we're also changing the way the human brain works and in bad ways, right, that you know, our young people are so, they, they communicate so much through text, and now even with their teachers, they're communicating more through email and chat and this, that, and another, that, that they are developing anxieties about oral communication. Now, this was mm. mind-boggling to me when it was first said, but I was like, yeah, you're right. And we have students who, who are freezing up and nervous about those face-to-face interactions. That's not healthy. Right. So again, mm-hmm. you know, the other thing we need to do is we need to have we need to have we need to rebuild these relationships and, right. and rebuild neural pathways that make people exactly. comfortable speaking out and engaging with one another. Because um, mm-hmm. the you know the overall long term effects of just more and more into the text and chat and iPhone world is not going to be a place where we have a, a healthier, more productive. Well, set of children. right, and 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 we need a place where we can develop EQ, intelligence quotient, right, as well well as the IQ. And that's mm-hmm. where we come into the friendships and socialization and maturation and navigating differences and, you know, other experiences so that we appreciate the differences and different walks mm-hmm. of life. Right? Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's, it's, as we see our children, all, all of us see our children struggling on one level or another, 
you know, it, it is often hard for us as parents to disaggregate between, you know, what is an academic challenge, what is an emotional challenge, what is both of those, what's normal, what's what, what's abnormal. But, you know, what we do know is that all these children are developing, right? And whether they were at home or at school, they're going through struggles. So I think we have to we have to be patient with the fact that, you know, this is not just flipping a light switch and, and kids memorizing road information. This is them going from children to adults, and it takes Absolutely. a long time and a lot of yeah. experiences. So how would you like, to, what would you like to leave our listeners with today, uh, Derek? What is your message about public ed- education and how important that is for democracy? Yeah, I mean, my message is that public education has been here with us through thick and thin, never perfect, but always on this march towards a more perfect union. And if we abandon our commitment to public education, we are abandoning our commitment to a more perfect union. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the good message here is that most Americans don't want that. Most Americans do want robust public schools that bring us together and produce high-quality education. And if that's what you want, it is unfortunately time that we hold public officials of all political parties accountable for the fact that our schools uh, and and many instances have fewer resources and are more segregated today than they were, you know, a decade or so ago. We, we've got to reverse this, reverse this train in the wrong direction. All right. Thank you so much for being on the program. And how do people find you or get the book? Uh, yeah, the book is available in bookstores. It's available, you know, anywhere online you want to look. You know, as for me, you know, I'm on uh, Twitter, at uh, Derek W. Black commenting pretty much daily on, on what's going on on public education, although it's hard to talk about much more than school closings at the moment, but I try to give okay. you a dose of, of, of what's right. below that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Derek. All right, so stand the line for a second. All right, folks, that wraps up this edition of the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show. Uh, you can like me on Facebook, Patricia Raskin, Raskin Resources. If you'd like a copy of my newsletter to see about all the guests, please write to me, Patricia, at PatriciaRaskin.com. And if you're thinking of doing your own program, a podcast, uh, I help people create them and would love to help you. So uh, contact me, Patricia, at PatriciaRaskin.com. Remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, I'm Patricia Raskin. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of The Patricia Raskin Show. Be sure to join Patricia Raskin and another amazing guest next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have an outstanding week. Have an outstanding week.